Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on TWIP, Apple and Adobe update their software, a discussion on small strobe photography and speedlighting.com SIL Arena. All that and much more on episode number 146 of This Week in Photography. And we are back for another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we've got uh, Mr. Steve Simon coming to us from, from the Big Apple over there. Hey, Steve. I haven't been on the show since 1988. It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, you were, yeah, you, you've been on a couple, what well, was it, a couple weeks ago, right? It's not no, been no, that no. Long. It's, been, it's been like a couple of months. I've, uh, it's been a long time. I've missed you guys, but uh, good to be back. You are back now. Well, someone uh, who is not on the show regularly that I hope will agree to come on the show regularly is here, and that is Mr. Sill Arena coming to us from Paso Robles, California. Hey, Sill. Hey, Frederick. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. So uh, this is going to be an exciting show, I think, because for a number of reasons, um, you know, both of you guys notwithstanding, but still, I wanted to talk to you uh, specifically a little bit about your specialty, which is small strobes and that kind of magic using Canon and other speed lights. So uh, we can dive into that a little bit. Um, and uh, and I know you're you're going to be coming up, like we were saying before we started recording, you're going to be coming up to the Bay Area tonight for or this afternoon uh, slash tonight to present your your talk on small strobes big light can you uh, just give me like a one two sentences about what that that talk's going to be about you have to understand my sentences can be kind of long um <laughs> the talk tonight use punctuation is, arena use punctuation <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the talk the talk tonight is really going to be about um some basic concepts of what small flash can do and what it can't do one of the things that i like to share with people is they pay a lot of good money for these really expensive speed lights, put them on top of their camera, and have the expectation that they are automatically going to create Hollywood quality light. Well, physics is physics, and we're going to talk about that tonight as to what these small flashes can and can't do. And then we're going to um, talk about how to basically get them off camera so we can create some beautiful light. Because here's the secret in a nutshell. You want to create beautiful light, you've got to create great shadows as well. Interesting. That's it's very zen. Look into the dark in order to see the light, right? Something like that, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And Steve Simon, uh, what have you been up to? I know you. Last time I talked to you, you were, I think, since we've last spoken, you've been around the world once or twice. You've been up north in the snow. You've been over in the desert. <laughs> you've been all over the place. So what what is on your docket? Well, I've, uh, it's been a while since we've talked, and I was at the Olympics and the Paralympics in Vancouver, which was mm -hmm. an amazing experience, and uh, you know, happy to talk photographically about that. And then I had the, the great pleasure of doing a workshop at Gulf Photo Plus um, in Dubai, and it's just an amazing experience there. And you know, with Sill on the show, I mean, it was, now Sill wasn't there, but um, there was David Hobby, the strobist, Zach Arias, uh, Joe McNally. So a lot of uh, you know small strobe people, experts were there, 
And uh, it's amazing. I'm, I'm curious to ask Sill. It seemed to me, you know, to have all three of those guys at this one event, almost overkill, yet, you know, people just couldn't get enough of the small strobe. And I, I guess I think we know maybe why that is, but I'm curious to know, uh, you know, what Sill has to say about just the popularity and the, the passionate interest in, in flash all of a sudden, because certainly it's been something that I think a lot of photographers have had to, to wrestle with over the years. It's, it hasn't been that easy. It's gotten easier. And uh, now it just seems to have, have caught fire. People just want to learn how to use these things. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think about that? Is, is, I mean, is it just pent up demand because people have been shying away from small strobes or is it, the technology is there now, so now we, people are actually using them. I think it's a couple things. I think, one, the technology is really, really good. Um, Canon's ETTL, Nikon's ITTL, really great technology when you know what it can and what it can't do. Um, the other thing, of course, is that my three friends who you just mentioned, and I'm very proud to say that they're all three good friends of mine, um, despite the fact that they mostly shoot Nikon, of course. Um, there we go. I say I say that tongue in cheek. Everybody's got to understand straight up. I you got really two Nikon shooters on the line here, so. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know. And frankly, what happened is all those guys went to Golf Photo Plus, and while they were there, I launched Speedlighting.com as the first Canon-specific site for speedlight info, and the traffic goes crazy. So I caught them while their guard was down. Um, but here's the reason. I think the technology is great, but more importantly, people are have, getting access. I mean, we're all out there teaching. We've all got blogs. Um, I've got a book in the works that Peach Pit is going to publish in August. Joe's obviously done very, very well with his two books. I'm hoping that Zach will write a book. And David, of course, is the most prolific blogger I know, other than maybe the other David, David Zeiser, who's also an amazing uh, shooter. And yeah. um, there's a ton of information out there. And I think most importantly, people are beginning to see what these small flash can do. The worst thing, in my opinion, that engineers ever did was put a hot shoe on top of the camera. Mm. Because people use studio strobes and mono lights and don't have the apparent frustration that they have with their speed lights. And I think that largely comes from the fact that they put their speed lights in the hot shoe, which is the perfectly wrong place to yeah. mount a speed light. So then just, just quickly on that, so is it is it a case of, um, and like when I, when I look at some of the shots that, that you guys create with these small strobes and David Hobby and Joe McNally, all these guys that are able to create these amazing shots with these little things that you can stick in your back pocket, um, is, can those, and I know we're bending the laws of physics and I almost know the answer to my question before I, ans before I ask it, but can the small strobes replace those big pro photo you know, lights that, that you see in the studios lighting up cars and all that? Absolutely. Um, not only can they replace them, but they can do a lot of things that the big studio packs can't. Uh, I went through some calculations last week for a, a chapter in Speedlighter's handbook where I literally compared the use of a dozen speed lights, which in the Canon world would set you back about 5000 bucks to what 5000 bucks would buy in the Profoto world, what it would buy in the Ellen Crom Ranger world, what it would buy in the Alien B slash New Einstein world. And I compared all four of those options. And there's some things like high-speed sync, which is an amazing technology that you have to have a dedicated, compatible speed light to use. And specifically what that is in a nutshell 
it gets rid of the limitation of your sync speed. If you can shoot at a thousandth of a second or an eight thousandth of a second with a speed light, that's something you cannot do with a studio pack. It all has to do with the camera and the speed light working together, talking and communicating. It's amazing technology that, as I think you said, can, in the right hands, and sometimes even I get lucky, um, can make amazing images. Now, now uh, Mr. Simon, what are you, what are you doing with, with, with the small strobes? I know you're, you're out and about all the time, and, and you are probably always challenged with various lighting scenarios where you got to think on your feet and, and get the shot. Are you, are you able to deploy these small strobes in, the, uh, in your line of work as you're doing this photojournalism type photography? Well, I think that, uh, you know, one of the, the sort of new variables that's come along in recent years is the fact that our cameras now have amazing uh, high ISO sensitivity. So, you know, you can use uh, the Speedlight system at ISOs that generally you wouldn't have tried before. And you can confidently, you know, ramp up your ISO to 400, 800, 1600. And that opens up new worlds. And you don't need the big, powerful packs, um, you know, to create a beautiful kind of lighting, even if you want to use in, in fairly low light situations, higher ISOs. Um, but the irony is, for me, um, as the uh, available light uh, high ISO um, equipment uh, cameras have gotten so much better like the D3S is just incredible in terms of you know shooting I, I had at the Olympics I had no compunction uh, for shooting at you know 3200 not a problem 6400 not a problem I got beautiful results at 12,800 and in a pinch you can go up to 102,000 which is just absolutely astounding and the yeah. thing is um, in the kind of work that I do, I'm, I'm often uh, not using flash and getting amazing available light results if the light is even, even if it's low. And I am often astonished uh, when I look at what I, I see on the back of the camera because you can't even necessarily see it um, in reality, which is quite amazing. Which yeah. isn't to say that uh, I'm not using uh, small strobes, and but I use it in a very simplistic way. I agree with Sil. Got to get that uh, flash off the camera, but with one speed lights or even two speed lights in a variety of situations, that's probably all I'm ever going to need um, for the kind of work that that I do. Although I'm I'm interested in learning more and I'm interested in playing more. And I just wanted to point out, I think it's on the web, but one of the highlights for me, um, you know, aside from my students in the workshop that I was giving, was on the Saturday in Dubai, they had at the Gulf Photo Plus, they had a shootout. And, uh, you know, this was something that it was a lot of pressure because basically it was uh, David Hobby, Zach Arias, and the young Joey L., who's an amazing annoyingly young guy who's just had all kinds of great success and he's also a fellow Canadian but um, so these guys came into a theater and were given the assignment they were given two models to shoot and they had to come up with an original photo uh, that they created using their small strobes and uh, it's online uh, I would definitely recommend that uh, you check it out and uh, it was amazing to see. I mean, it's, it's a lot of pressure. Uh, I'm sure Sill would uh, aptly handle it. But uh, it, was, it was interesting to see them thinking on their feet with their experience using small strobe. And it's something that you can learn relatively quickly as long as you just practice it. And you'll be astounded at what you're able to achieve with it. Now, Sill, uh, Steve brings up a, a really good uh, 
uh, issue that or not a, not an issue, but just a question that that I wanted to, to pose. So we're looking at these these new cameras like the D3, D700, the 5D Mark II, all these cameras with these amazing sensors in them that can, you know, sometimes see things that we can't see in terms of of being able to resolve an image in low light situations. So. Back in the old days, the the thinking, at least my thinking was before, you know, I got into this photography thing was, okay, you take pictures and when it gets too dark, too dark to take a photo, you stick a flash on the camera and now you have your own light. It's like a flashlight. You can take more pictures, you know. So that's that's sort of the, my that was my general amateur thinking of what strobe photography was for. Sure. But now you fast forward to today, and of course we know that's not true. You get the camera off, or the flash off the camera. You can do all sort of creating lighting techniques. But the question is, with these high sensitivity uh, sensors that we have in the cameras today, is strobe even necessary? I mean, because, and I'm being controversial here, because I know who I'm talking to. So, so <laughs> is strobe necessary? Because you can get great shots going available light and arguably you know lots of times they're better than adding introducing uh third party or, or artificial lighting and then secondly with all this video stuff that's happening and i know people in the twip audience are rolling their eyes because i'm talking about video but this yeah, is appropriate. you promise you wouldn't well this is appropriate <laughs> because video lighting like the led lights that are continuous light sources that put pump out a lot of light and let you see exactly what you're going to get when you shoot it, and if you have these high ISO cameras that can that are relatively noise free at high ISOs, do you really even need strobe? Do you need that pop of light? Great questions. Great. You know, Frederick, here's my view in a nutshell. I don't really care how you get the image because at the end of the day, nobody who's looking at your photograph is going to hear, oh, I did this, I did that, I did this. It's ultimately the, our images go out into the world without us. We're not standing next to them. And so what's in the frame is what people see and it's what they think about. Believe me, if I can shoot available light and if the light's beautiful, then I absolutely don't want to go to the hassle of breaking out more gear than I need to use to get the image. That said, though, a couple of other things. It's still really important to understand that our cameras can only record a fraction of what we can see. And specifically when it comes to light, what I'm talking about is shadows and, you know, you get outside in the bright sun and you, we can see the highlights on a car. We can see the detail and the gravel underneath the car in a dark part in a parking lot. You point your camera at that car under full sun and man, the highlights blow out and the shadows go completely black because our cameras, even with this amazing high ISO technology, don't have the capability to record a fraction of what we can see. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, why I think that HDR, high dynamic range photography, has gotten to be so popular is that we can, you know, compress and use multiple images to try to overcome these limitations. In my view, the reality is I've decided that I'm a photographer. I'm a photographer and not a retoucher. And I want to be able to create the light that I need for my image when that light isn't there. Now, if I'm shooting at the Olympics like Steve was, um, you know what? You're kind of stuck because the distances you have to work with with a long lens, a speed light's not going to reach out and create that beautiful rim light. You've got to go with what you get. 
And so high ISO is great, but it's not the end-all be-all because if you've got crappy light to begin with, then shooting it at 12,600 is not going to make it any better. All right? So you know, that said, I, again, it's, it's really about using the right tool at the right time to get the job done. And when the job's done, it's the image that speaks, not how it was created. Now, Sil, can you, can you do me a huge favor and just, you know, like when you're watching sports and you see, you see like uh, people in an arena, you know, a, a real arena, not a Sil arena, uh, but you see it, people in one of these real, these arenas and the camera sort of pulls back or they have the blimp shot and they show all these thousands of people in there getting ready to watch the big game or whatever. And you see all these little flashes popping <laughs> all over the place in the audience trying to get a shot of the field with a little on-camera strobe. Could you tell those people what's happening and if their light is actually reaching the subject? <laughs> well, please explain that to the world right now, uh, how that works. Yeah, theoretically, there are lights reaching the field, but whether it's measurable, perceptible, <laughs> um, absolutely not. Um, you know, I, I crack up at that too. I just think that's you know kind of part of the whole event lighting scheme is 10 million people trying to take an image. Um, every once in a while, somebody gets lucky. I've just got to believe, you know, it's like they poach off of each other's light. But by and large, yeah, your pop-up flash, um, you know, it's great for snapshots at birthday parties and at the office Christmas party. Um, and thanks in the Canon world uh, to the 7D, we can now can use pop-up to control wireless speed lights, wireless slaves, which Nikon has had for a long time. But the reality is that, man, a pop-up flash really serves very, very few purposes. It's not powerful enough. It's in exactly the wrong position to create good light. Um, yeah, and if you're a stadium and you're firing off your camera, you're probably getting great light on the head of the guy right in front of you, but two or three rows down, that light's turning to darkness. And 400 rows down on the field, yeah, theoretically, you can see that pop, um, but it's not really doing anything to illuminate the field, of course. Yeah, that little rule known as yeah. the inverse square law, when with light yeah. falling off inversely as it travels down the it road. Does, so it, it, does look, uh, it does look pretty when you see all of those flashes popping off at the beginning <laughs> of it. And, and the one saving grace is, it, you know, before the high-speed sync uh, came about was... And, it, you know, especially people with the little amateur cameras and the, the, the little flashes, is that the, the shutter speed probably at least would be slow enough for the flash sync. So it wouldn't be a fast shutter speed. So the available light images that they were got, getting, you know, probably prompted them to, you know, use the flash the next time. So if everything was completely dark, maybe people would sort of realize that their flash is, is not that powerful in lighting up the entire field. Yeah. And so before, before we move on, guys, I wanted to one thing still that you said uh, in the beginning was that you think that small strobes can effectively replace the big pro photo packs. So I want to so just can you uh, just expand on that a little bit? Because I have a bunch of Nikon SB 900s and I'm very happy with them. Um, but I also have um, a Speedatron studio lighting set with a gigantic softbox that I use for portraiture and models and that kind of thing. And I use that one. Well, and it's, it's sort of a, a, a case of not enough or too much. It seems like maybe I'm doing something wrong, but it seems like on this, on the small strobe side of things, um, there's not enough light coming out of there in order to fill that gigantic softbox to give me that soft quality wraparound light that I'm looking for. And then on the Speedatron 
side of things is a 2400 watt second pack that's driving that thing, which means I got to crank it all the way down in order to, because it's putting out too much light, you know? So how do you reconcile that and how is one better than the other? And, you know, just before I just, just answer that, if you could. A um, couple things to think about. One, a speed light, any brand of speed light is shaped fundamentally differently than the flash tubes in your studio packs. And this is something that a lot of people don't even think about. With a speed light, we've got a flat surface and all the light is blowing out straight to the front. You fire off a studio pack or a mono light, and it's got a round flash tube. And so that light is blowing back, it's blowing to the side, and it's blowing out to the front. So first and foremost, the shape of light that you're getting with your speedotrons or that you know with an alien B or virtually anything that's not a speed light, even a um, a sun pack or one of the quantum turbo flashes, the Q flashes, all of those flash tubes throw light out completely differently. So when you put a single head into a softbox, mm-hmm. your speedotron or dynolite or whatever has the ability because of the shape of the flash tube to fill up that softbox much more easily than a speed light that's throwing that light forward. Now, I don't want anybody to think, oh, I've got a speed light or two speed lights and that's going to replace a whole big 3,000 watt second studio pack set. That's absolutely not the case. But you get like six speed lights, or a lot of people heard about me when I first published my Smashing Pumpkins shoot, um, where I used 12 speed lights that largely the Canon had loaned me. Um, Fired them off with a bunch of radio poppers at a four thousandth of a second while one of my sons was beating the heck out of a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. And I got two things happened with that. I mean, it was truly, I was just goofing off and seeing what I could do. But I learned some really important things. One was the value of high-speed sync. But the other thing, and this is what I call gang light, is when you get a bunch of speed lights lined up, say, on a rail, and you're effectively treating them as one speed light, the linear aspect of that light, the fact that all those speed lights are lined up, creates effectively the look of a giant softbox. So you've got key light and you've got fill light. The lights on the left are throwing shadows to the right. The lights on the right are throwing shadows to the left. And everybody's filling in the shadows for the other. And that was really the amazing thing that I found in that Smashing Pumpkins shoot. Was how a bunch of speed lights basically can replace a light modifier. So, you know, it's, it's it's not for everybody to go out and use a whole bunch of lights. But I'll also, we'll talk about this tonight, um, at a meetup, um, you know, there'll be any number of speed lights that can be conscripted. You've got a couple, I've got a couple, Steve's got a couple, and we all get together on a Saturday, and pretty soon we've got eight or ten speed lights that, if they're all the same brand, we can use together and create some really cool light that rivals what you can do with studio packs. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, throw in the idea that, um, you know, when it comes to all this stuff, the technical stuff. And of course, you know, using speed lights, uh, though it has gotten easier, it's still, you know, not absolutely simplistic and a lot of thought and practice has to go into it. And, you know, as Sil said earlier, ultimately the image has to kind of stand on its own. And, you know, there's there's something to be said for the technical, of course. You, you know, that has to be a given. You have to have sort of the technical, your technique down. But, but, you know, technique on its own is not necessarily going to um, take you where you want to go. So, 
you know, in many ways, uh, you know, less is more. And you can have absolutely perfect technique and still have kind of boring images. So you want to be able to take care of the technique so that it becomes, so it fades into the background and you can concentrate on the image itself, you know, capturing the spontaneity from your subject if you're doing portraits or wherever that is. But ultimately, that will trump all the technique in the world. And I think, you know, as we get more technical and try and master some of the, the techniques that Sill and, and a lot of people are talking about, we have to realize that ultimately, um, you know, the image itself is, is more than technique. It's, 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 it's so much more. And, and not necessarily is technique and the technical the most important part of a successful image. Yeah. All right, guys, let's, let's move on. Um, we could talk about this all day and uh, I totally could. Uh, but let's uh, let's talk about some of the news. Um, first up, Adobe uh, has announced or has released Adobe Camera Raw 5.7 and updated their DNG or digital negative uh, converter to 5.7 in Lightroom 2. The shipping version has also incremented up to 5.7 or 2.7, actually. And then um, so the, there's basically in that release, there's new camera support. So if you were shooting with a camera that was shooting a raw type that wasn't supported, check their specs and we'll link to them in the show notes or just head over to Adobe site or to the Lightroom site and you'll be able to see what cameras they added to the lineup that are now supported. And they're really good about adding the, the camera support really quickly as those new cameras get released. And then not to be undone, Apple has released their raw compatibility update. I love this competition thing. This is making me really happy. Uh, so they're are you, now are you happy, Fred, that uh, now your $40,000 Leica S2 is supported by Aperture? <laughs> Yeah, I have two of those because, you know, I've got one just in case one breaks. I got one in the back room. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think the point of that is, and hopefully this will, the pace will pick up here, but Apple has been um, lethargically slow uh, historically with regard to updating the OS and Aperture to support the new cameras that are coming out. Now, this, seeing this new update, like right on the heels of, the latest Aperture update is encouraging, you know, because Adobe is like on it. I mean, like new cameras come out, they get them, they profile them and they release an update and Camera Raw gets it and everybody's happy. And then Apple, months later, you might see an update. Now this, because Apple has released this, I'm hoping this is a, a sign of things to come in terms of the frequency of updates of their yeah. other cameras. <clears throat> now, Steve, you're, still, yeah. you're shooting with the D3S now, right? That's what you were shooting with at the Olympics? Um, yeah, I had the D3 and the D3S, absolutely. Both supported by Aperture. I'm an Aperture guy, and I think that uh, you know, with the Aperture three out now, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled with it. I, it's it's just amazing to me, and I'm I'm hoping. Uh, you know, I think that the past doesn't necessarily equal the future, um, and in terms of uh, raw compatibility, I mean, it wasn't a problem unless, of course, your camera wasn't supported by your, uh, uh, you know, post processing software of choice. But uh, I think now, um, you know, they're on top of it. So hopefully that will, will continue, you know, into the future as new cameras are introduced. All right. So since we haven't talked since the Aperture 3 introduction, and it looks like it's getting some, some good traction out there, Steve, you being an Aperture user and having used 2.0, um, and now you're in 3.0, and presumably you're happy in there, what what are the like from a working pro standpoint? You know, you're out at the, the Olympics shooting. You know, this is this is a shots for dollars kind of thing, mission critical mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, did did the application hand stand up to those you know thousands of shots you were bringing bringing back to your hotel room every night? 
Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for me, um, you know, I I was it was just happening. I mean, you know, the Olympic start. I think um, Aperture Three was introduced um, literally. I think a week or two before the Olympics uh, began. So I, I kind of for part of it was using Aperture Two, and then slowly, um, you know, moved up to Aperture Three. You know, with quick preview, I mean, it's all about speed when you're at the Olympics. And though I was working for the commemorative book, I wasn't working for a daily wire service. I still had to file my images um, on a daily basis. So, so yeah, I mean, because I'm so familiar with the application, uh, it definitely, uh, you know, kept up with what I needed it to do. Um, but, you know, stepping back and sort of after the, the immediacy and the craziness of the Olympics were, were over um, and looking at some of the new features in Aperture 3, uh, it's amazing. I mean, now you can selectively adjust with uh, the brushes. Um, uh, there's just, you know, we can, we can if, I don't think we not necessarily want to talk about it right now, but, um, you know, we can do definitely a whole show looking at uh, both Aperture and Lightroom, the two yeah. probably most popular, um, you know, and, and, and you know, compare them. But but it's 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 very exciting because now, from where we're at now, going forward, I mean, it's fantastic. It's it's thrilling as a photographer. Uh, you know, it's just it's just it's hard to imagine, you know, three years from now what things are going to look like. I mean, when you look at you know, in my experience at least, the D3S and what it's able to achieve in low lighting. Um, and Aperture 3, where it's at. Imagine, you know, incrementally improving on, you know, those two technologies and bringing them forward two or three years. It's kind of hard to imagine, but very exciting to, to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what, what are you using as your, your post-processing application of choice? Still Arena? Here. Oh, there Favorite? you go. Yeah, we lost your audio for a second. Okay. No, go for it. Um. I'm a Lightroom guy. Been using Lightroom since the early betas. Um, and I just, I like to keep it simple. And Adobe's done a great job. Um, for, in fact, when I look at my use of Photoshop, man, I am totally reverting. I could probably get by with like Photoshop 3.0 right now um, because I'm doing so much work in Lightroom. And I, I very seldom hand off an image to Photoshop. Yeah, the uh, the Adobe guys are are like slapping their foreheads right now because they're trying to get that CS5 out into everybody's <laughs> into everybody's hands and you know, it you're absolutely right though, Sil. It's uh with the the power as you and that might be that's that's a nut that they have to crack because as Lightroom gets incrementally better and is going up against Aperture, which is getting incrementally better, uh Lightroom is not only competing against uh, aperture, but it's also encringing upon Photoshop, you know, sort of the cash cow at Adobe. And, and folks like you that are saying, I don't really need to go into Photoshop anymore as a photographer. If you're solely a photographer and, you know, and you're not doing any other design and that kind of stuff, then um, you hear that more and more. People are saying, I can get all my stuff done in Aperture or in Lightroom and I don't have to jump into Photoshop. But, but that's, that's great for all of us. That's great for all photographers. I mean, let's look back. Digital photography did not even exist when Photoshop was invented. Yeah. It was named Photoshop, but the reality is it was more like a painting program than a photography program. And yep. so I don't think there's any doubt at Adobe. Um, and guys, feel free to call me and tell me differently. I'm not your representative, but <laughs> I can't imagine that anybody's having a lot of heartache because they're able to sell Lightroom far more successfully than they're able to sell Photoshop as an end-all, be-all solution for a novice photographer. 
You know, yeah. I, I, without hesitation, will go out and recommend to a novice shooter that they get Lightroom. Yeah. I will never recommend to a novice shooter that they just go out and buy Photoshop and uh, use ACR as their turnkey solution for image processing. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, then, then there's, there's, there's Photoshop elements and all that, which, again, we need to do a complete show on, on uh, digital asset management solutions mm-hmm. for the pro photographer and, and just sort of dive into the aperture, the Lightroom, the Photoshop, the bridge, and, and all the other also RANs uh, in there. Um, so yeah, we should, we should definitely do that. So Steve, Simon, do you find yourself just to, to close this off? Do you find yourself jumping into Photoshop out of aperture three or you, do you corral yourself in aperture? No, very, uh, you know, very much like Syl. I mean, I, there, there are fewer and fewer reasons for me to, uh, leave, um, uh, aperture right now especially now that you can do the selective editing and they've added brushes and curves i mean i'm not one to create images out of different layers i'm more of i'm a documentary photographer so i'm not really messing with the pixels so so for me uh there's really no reason i mean i'd like to keep up because i teach and i do workshops so i want to sort of keep abreast of the various uh, you know photo processing softwares out there but my brain is not that big so i can't be an expert (laughs) on everything and i want to be able to be shooting more and uh, so I'm, I'm just sort of sticking with Aperture, and, and uh, it does pretty well everything that I, I need it to do. And, and even when I'm doing presentations, for example, um, you know, with the new one, you can create these amazing slideshows now. You can have the Ken Burns effect, and you can add video and audio. And so, so it's going to keep me busy for, for a long time. I, I no longer use Keynote um, when I do my presentations. I do it all from Aperture because I can easily maneuver around my entire collection of photos and go from slideshows to full screen this and that and move around. So, so that's just one other area that I'm, I'm using it for, and it's, it's working out great. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so let, let's uh, let's take this other story, Steve, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this story to you. I hope you have the show notes here because it looks like yeah. a photographer in your backyard uh, is is selling an image for over one million dollars. Did you see that article? Yes, I did. Uh, the great, <laughs> are you uh, jealous? Are you gonna go? Are you gonna go oh, harass yeah, this I'm, guy? I'm totally <laughs> jealous. Of course. I mean. You know, I mean, there are very few people in the world. And, and you know, again, the, the idea of photographer suddenly um, changes into sort of, you know, in the art world. Because, you know, you're an artist and you're using photography. And Jeff Wall is one of those people. I mean, he's obviously had a long and distinguished career. Um, but, you know, photographers selling images for a million dollars are always going to be controversial because, you know, f- photographers know what, what goes on. But there's this sort of society that is created that deems, that knights certain artists as being the people that are going to sell their images at Sotheby's or Christie's for a million dollars. And, you know, guys like Gursky and Jeff Wall, I mean, there are, there are a handful of, of these people um, and and it's 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 sort of beyond my understanding. And you know, if you look at the article that was in the Vancouver Sun, and then you look at the comments, I mean, they're they're what you'd expect. I mean, you know, when you see the image, it's, are they like it's are you crazy of a, kind of comments or what? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of that, but I think I think that um, you know why a piece becomes so valuable is because. You know the 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 powers that be in the art world deem that this is an important work, 
and that it is limited. I mean, you can't make a thousand of them. And, uh, you know, it it becomes something that uh, is accepted to be, uh, yeah, the debate, I mean, you know, I'm not even going to try and defend it. But, uh, yeah, if I could sell an image for a million dollars, that would be a wonderful thing. Well, Um, Silarina, I'll throw this to you. It seems like uh, it's it's an issue of kind of like what what Chris Anderson um, the uh, one of the editors or the editor of uh, Wired magazine, he wrote in a book called The Long Tail, um, where it, basically the premise was that in this age, um, with the, the Internet and the global ubiquity somewhat of Internet access, that instead of selling one thing to a few people, you can sell a lot of small things to lots of people and make lots of money. So applying that to this $1 million image, does the, does it make, in my opinion, it seems like I'd rather sell a million $1 prints to a million people <laughs> than, than one print for $1 million. Cause with, if you sell a million prints, then you have that, that exposure to a million people, not just the one person in the pop of the press that, that this guy's getting right now. Well, where do you fall on that? Well, on Mondays, I'd like to sell the million dollar print. And then on Tuesdays, <laughs> I would want to sell the million one dollar prints, and then on Wednesday we'll go somewhere halfway in between. Five dollars. Um, yeah, you know, two hundred thousand. I mean, let's face it: as photographers, we love the idea of uh, you know making money from our work. It's getting harder and harder to do all the time. Um, and the fact that a photograph sold for a million dollars, I'll go on record and say it doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's bottles of wine that have sold for millions of dollars. There's pieces of canvas with paint dribbled on them that have sold for millions of dollars. Um, And I'm a huge fan, by the way, of Jackson Pollock. So I'll go on record in in, in that context where the uh, abstract expressionists and and so on amongst us. Um, So in today's world, there's lots of ways to earn a living. There's lots of ways to make your way. And I certainly understand uh, the model um, of selling a million at one buck a piece. I'm not sure that's any easier uh, than it is to sell one print at a million bucks a piece because you've got to get a million people to say yes. And sure, you know, I mean, I've done a couple of crazy things um, that have gone viral on the web. They were total flukes and they lasted about 12 minutes. And when my 12 minutes of fame was up on um, wired.com or whatever picked up one of my blog posts, you know, the world was on to something else. I have never come close. I've never been closer to selling a million prints for a buck a piece than I have to selling one print for a million bucks. Yeah. You know, Fred, just uh, one more thing on that. Um, mm-hmm. there, the great National Geographic photographer, a guy whose work I really admire and love, um, Sam Abel, uh, one of the things he did outside of National Geographic, he worked on, he was one of the photographers that worked on the uh, Marlboro campaign. And, you know, those cowboys and, you know, and granted, it's a cigarette company. It was a long time ago. But uh, the artist Richard Prince basically um, took one of his images and sort of photographed the photograph and kind of repurposed it. Um, and that image sold upwards of a million dollars. Um, there's no way that uh, Sam Abel would ever sell kind of a real documentary image uh, for any anything close to that, it's just the way the art world kind of works. And, you know, you can have the Obama image that was created by um, Associated Pre- uh, Press Photography. I think his name is Manny 
I, I can't remember his last name, but then Shepard Ferry took that image and kind of transformed it. And, you know, arguably you can say, well, maybe he didn't really do that much because it looks very similar. Mm -hmm. But then that image becomes iconic and becomes an art piece. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole other world that is hard to kind of get your hands on and figure out. And just like you can't, you know, create something that's guaranteed to go viral, it just happens. Uh, so too does the art world work. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, you know, I don't think anyone necessarily is smart enough to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, I'm sure it's not a binary thing. It's not like you're going to, you're going to go one way or the other. And in the end, I, I'd be happy to sell an image for a dollar or a million dollars, but although of course I'd prefer a million dollars. Um, let's, uh, let's move on and, and take some listener questions really quick here. Um, the first one up is from Milton Gann and Steve, I'm going to read the question and I'm going to throw it over to you. Uh, for an answer. He says, I'm ready to buy a new MacBook Pro, but I'm unsure which type of display will be best for post-processing, glossy or matte. I know it's subject subjective and both have merits. For example, more vibrant colors on glossy versus the anti-glare of matte. But as pros, which do you prefer? Steve? Well, I think that, um, you know, the the proper the appropriate response for me would be to say to go anti glare uh, matte because I think one of the criticisms of the 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 glossy screen is that it's it's too glossy and and the reflections and so on but uh, I'm going to be upgrading my my MacBook Pro pretty soon. And frankly, um, I think that whole uh, idea is a little bit overdone because I've got a glossy screen that I've been using the last couple of years. And, you know, it is beautiful, granted, and maybe it is a little bit uh, glary at times. But I'm not necessarily printing off this, you know, MacBook Pro. I'll, I'll use my, um, my other screen for that. And as long as it's calibrated, it's good. Uh, I might just be going the way of uh, the glossy screen just because it looks beautiful. And as long as I calibrate when I'm printing, you know, I'm, I'm good. As long as your screens are calibrated, um, I, may, I, may, I may go glossy given the choice, although I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. Maybe yeah, I'm a, I know. I'm, I'm the same rat. way. I know I shouldn't. And I've read the reviews <laughs> and some of the TWIP listeners have, have made it clear. <laughs> I do a lot of things that I know are I shouldn't, bad for but, you, know, you, but... I don't know. I like just, glossy, and I have it on both my machines, so I'm happy. You know, with just it. just as in your photography, sometimes you just got to go with your gut, trust your intuition, and and it's not such a big deal. It's it's you know you, you know don't there are better things to do than pixel peep. Get out there and shoot. I think you don't have to spend too much time. Go with your gut. If you love the way the glossy looks and it looks great, uh, go with it. I, I think if you're a meticulous sort of scientific mind um, and you're going to be doing critical work from it, maybe the, um, the anti-glare is the way to go. But I, I, I'm leaning toward the glossy, and I know maybe uh, it's not the thing to say. Sil, what are, what are you using, matte or glossy? Oh, I have, uh, I have a three-year-old MacBook Pro, um, and this is the first time that I've not upgraded um, on the three-year anniversary of my gear. I've decided, frankly, um, it does the job just perfectly, and, and if I had the money to spend on a new laptop, there's, frankly, a lot of glass I'd want to throw that money at before I got a new laptop. Um, if you saw my computer, you'd understand why I have to go with, with the Mac screen. I touch my screens all the time. They are a mess. I'm like reading something and then the phone rings. I'll literally put my finger on the screen where I'm reading 
answer the phone and then come back to it. So I got stuff all over my keyboards, you know, spilled coffee and as many meals as I have over my computer. <laughs> so for me, you know, to hide the sins of my weaknesses, I've got to stick with the anti-glare. Uh, but I think Steve's right on track. Go with your intuition. And if you think that the quality of your screen determines the quality of the prints that are being made by a separate machine, you really need to learn the basics of color management um, because what you see on your screen is not what you're going to get out of your computer um, yeah. or out of your printer. It's, yeah. not, uh, it's not rocket science, but color management is really an important part of what we do, um, even if you're making or sending your prints out and not making them in your studio. So, so just, just for the folks in the audience or the, in the, the listening audience that may not know what color management is. You want to define that just real quickly? Sure. Um, color management is essentially the process of accepting the fact that our cameras see differently than color differently than our screens portray and our screens portray color differently than printers print. I mean, uh, I, I've had the opportunity to study with uh, Mac Holbert and JP Caponegro, two of the guys who are really masters at fine art, high-quality printmaking. And one of the hard lessons I learned early on was it's not only the hardware that you have, but, man, you change the paper stock that you're running through your printer and the gamut, the number of colors that you can reproduce will change. So bottom line, it's gotten to be relative to where we were five and ten years ago, color management has gotten to be pretty simple and pretty affordable. So Adobe's done a great job, and I'm sure that, that Apple equally has done a great job of implementing color management so that I can use a small device on the screen of my laptop periodically. It will read a series of color chips, and it will say, hey, here's how Sill's MacBook Pro sees and renders color. So if I make an adjustment, I try not to do color critical work on my laptop. Um, if I make an adjustment based upon that, and then I send it off to my printer and I tell uh, Photoshop or Lightroom, this is the printer profile I'm using, this is the paper that I'm using. Ideally, in a perfect world, if I've ticked all the boxes and pushed all the buttons correctly, I'll get a print out of the printer that looks relatively close to what I'm seeing on my screen. But here's the thing to understand about that. Our screens, I mean, here we are talking about glossy screens and how big and beautiful and vibrant they are. They're able to portray a much wider gamut, a bigger box of crayons than our printers can print. So yeah. there's this kind of, you know, ebb and flow all the time. We get better screens, but then our printer's got to catch up. Um, the bottom line is you got to realize, and it's hard to do with photography because we just take it for granted. We see beautiful images like, you know, Steve's work coming out of the Olympics or wherever, and you go, oh, my God, I get a sense of uh, that I was there. Um, if you hand somebody a pencil and say, make a photorealistic image, they'll understand it's really hard because it's just a pencil. But you hand somebody a camera and they think, oh, well, what the camera records is exactly what I'm seeing. And that's certainly not the case. Yeah. 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 It's the, the whole world of, of color management is voodoo. Um, oh, not voodoo in terms of you'll never understand it, but it, it's much more complex, like you're saying, Syl, than, than most people get. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it goes down even to the rods and cones in your eyes and how you perceive color differently than the guy standing next to you. So, you know, if they see green as a different shade of green than you see it, who's right? Right. So, yeah. 
yeah, it's a it's a moving target in that respect. And I think in the end, we can only ever hope to get it close. We're never going to have this red be the exact red that everybody on the planet's seeing because everybody sees red differently. So let's take another listener question. Uh, uh, so I'm going to throw this one at you. It's from Charles Knowles. I'm going to read it out for you and then you can you can take it away. He says, Charles says, is a mechanical shutter still needed on today's digital cameras? It seems that the image sensor should be able to sample the light as fast or faster than a shutter would. Using the sensor as the shutter might allow through an algorithm to control the exposure of each pixel in the sensor, blowing HDR out of the water. I know the shutter projects the image sensor or protects the image sensor, but it seems that a system could be devised to cover it when the lens is off the camera. So. Okay. Um, you know, anything's possible if you throw enough money at it. I mean, the reality <laughs> is um, that technology of electronic shutters using the sensor as an electronic shutter, it's out there. It's in the laboratories. Um, the question is, you know, when will it become an economic reality? I don't know. But I know that um, my new Droid Incredible, which is showing up on Thursday, has a much better camera in it than my old Motorola phone that I bought a number of years ago. So I've no doubt that in a handful of years, Steve was talking a few minutes ago about his excitement over where we're going to be in three and five years. And I think that's part of it, is that our cameras will continue to get better and smarter. Um, so as I understand it right now, the limitation of a sensor to be an electronic shutter, if you will, is the difference between a CMOS sensor and a CCD sensor. And man, that's about the extent of my my knowledge in terms, I couldn't even describe the difference in terms of what makes a CMOS a CMOS and what makes a charged coupled device a charged coupled device. Um, but I've no doubt um, that all of this technology is going to continue to become more ubiquitous, more widely available, and more affordable. And God forbid, you know, I've been shooting now for um, 45 years or something like that. I started as a wee wee lad. Um, <laughs> and photography is completely different. Uh, you know, I jumped in, I jumped in the photo world uh, when Polaroid was new and I shot view cameras at Brooks Institute and, uh, you know, I've shot all the different types of cameras that I'm really fortunate, uh, feel fortunate that I've had those experiences. And I, I, like Steve, I'm really excited about the future of this technology. But again, at the end of the day, I'm ultimately reminded that it's the images we're creating that speak to our viewers and not the technology that created them. All right. Very well said. All right. This last question is from Jason Muirhead, and I'm actually going to defer this one. I'm going to hold off on this question for when we have our resident aperture expert on the show, Joseph Lenashke. Uh, but I'm going to read the question out, and then hopefully if Joseph is listening, he may even put a post on ApertureExpert.com answering it. Uh, but John, he says he's referring to uh, the, one, the last interview we had on the show, John P. He said, John P's rant on tagging from episode 145 got me thinking on how to export my fully annotated files from Aperture to Squarespace albums without needing to enter that data again. Does someone involved with TWIP have a workflow to export an album from Aperture and Lightroom, for that matter, into an album in Squarespace? So 
That's the question. I don't know the answer to that unless one of you guys do. But uh, regardless, I want to throw that off to Joseph because I think he is the expert, as he says in his URL, <clears throat> AperturExpert.com. Yeah, that's really uh, more of a Squarespace uh, issue, I think, uh, Frederick, than, than Aperture. Because certainly, you know, you're going to, um, all the metadata that's tied to the images in the album are, are, are going to go with it wherever you export it. But uh, yeah. I guess that's something that needs to be found, found out with Squarespace. Because you're saying the data is there, but it, whether the, the provider, in this case Squarespace, reads it or not is on their side, right? Yeah, that's, that's my thinking on that. Okay, cool. All right, guys, let's jump into the picks of the week. And since, Syl, you're, uh, you're the new guy here, what's, uh, do you have a pick that you want to throw out to the audience, photography-related, site, gear, technique, whatever? This, as I mentioned earlier, this Thursday, uh, Verizon's going to start delivering their Droid Incredible. Um, I live in a part of the world where AT&T doesn't have coverage, so I've never been able to embrace the iPhone as a solution. And yeah. I'm really excited about the fact that <coughs> I get all choked up. Um, I'm really excited <laughs> about the fact that um, there's going to be a phone that I think will um, compete with the iPhone, and I'm entirely a Mac guy, except I don't have, I'm probably the only photographer in the universe. Maybe they'll sell one Droid Incredible, um, and that's me. Um, but I'm actually really excited to see how this new hardware um, adapts itself to my photographic workflow. And so I'm going to start blogging about it on Pixelated, and I'm also um, going to be surfing the web and seeing how other photographers are beginning to use um, this new camera, this awesome. new phone. Yeah. Very cool. All right, Mr. Uh, Mr. Simon, what's your what's your pick of the week? Um, well, I, I don't have this, and I'm wearing glasses now, but I don't really need them. They're more of a cosmetic thing. They're clear. <laughs> I just look good with them. So you I put New them Yorkers. On. But uh, Hoodman came out with this uh, thing called photo frames, and it's not it's not you know a framed electronic image. It's actual glasses that the the lens flips up or sorry, which is your, your photo eye, the lens flips up and lets you use your, your real eye if you have a diopter. And so for, for eyeglass wearers, um, you can you know, get whatever prescription. It comes with sort of clear lenses. You can bring it to your optical guy and they could put whatever glasses, whatever uh, prescription you have. But the beauty is it, it kind of flips up if, if that's the way you want to shoot. So you can keep your glasses on, keep your, your left eye sort of scanning the scene while your right eye is clearly um, in, the, in the, uh, the viewfinder. So it looks really interesting. I've never seen anything like that before. Uh, for eyeglass wearers out there, um, that might be kind of exciting for them. Very cool. That's an excellent tip. Thanks, Steve. And my pick of the week is kind of a website. And uh, this week I'm going to go with lynda.com, specifically because one of the guests that we had on the show a couple of weeks back um, – Mr. Derek Story has just released some app, some lynda.com training on Aperture 3. So I wanted to give that a call out um, because you can go there and sign up for like a month. You can sign up, you can sign up for a trial um, and play around with it for a bit, but you can sign up in different increments um, and actually sample the content. And I'm, I'm playing around with it because I just wanted to learn more about this stuff that you, Steve, and Joseph were talking about in terms of the new, the new features inside of Aperture 3. So I signed up. And then, of course, Derek is teaching it. And I know he knows this stuff. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know about this stuff. So um, uh, he re they released it last week. So I decided, hey, I'm going to give it a shot. I went in there. 
And literally in the first three movies, I learned more about that app than, you know, than I was able to sort of cull from just surfing around the web and talking to different people. So check out lynda.com and specifically the Derek Story training on Aperture 3 on uh, on the site. And uh, I think it's it's pretty interesting. So that's my yeah, tip. I, I've, been, I've been looking at that too, Frederick. And, uh, you know, Derek is so good and his... You know, his, his on-camera, his voice is so soothing uh, and so <laughs> relaxing that it just so makes like milk learning Aperture 3 that much uh, easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. All right. Uh, so we're, we're down at the, the end of the train again. The show went by really quickly. I think the, the small strobe stuff, you know, that eats up the time because I could talk about that like forever and ever. And so, Sil, I'm really thankful that you're coming up tonight to uh, to talk to the the uh, this week in photography smug mug meetup group so that's uh it's going to be an exciting time and so just on that how many how many strobes are you packing into the car to bring up tonight for that event just four just only four, four? Um, wait i saw an yeah. image of you with like 90 of these things lined up i, I, I have to, I I have to borrow them you know that's i I'm, I'm hoping anybody who's coming tonight if you're a cannon shooter bring your speed lights and we'll fire them all off um no, I, I own four speed lights, and I travel with four speed lights. The world thinks, oh, still has got a shoot, you know, a suitcase full of them. But man, yeah. uh, I'm a photographer. I can't afford all this expensive gear. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so this is going to be a really interesting talk. So, uh, so Sil, where can where can people go to find out more about you and the stuff that you're working on, and and follow you online, etc. Okay. Um, two sites, speedlighting.com, and that's since it's a Canon-centric site, it's spelled Canon's way, uh, L-I-T-I-N-G. Um, and then my other blog is pixelated.com, uh, and it's kind of taken a back seat since I launched Speedlighting a couple of months ago. Uh, I did a post for the first time, I think in a month, yesterday on Pixelated, because yesterday was the Worldwide Pinhole Photography Day, the 10th annual. Oh, so I couldn't wow. let that. I could not let that slide by. I love pinhole photography, and um, it was an article that I didn't get out on a timely basis last year. So I said, "To heck with it! I'm going to make sure." Um, so, pixelated is a play in my name. It's p i x s y l a t e d dot com. Awesome. All right, and uh, Mr. Steve Simon, where are you located in the ether? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, I'm going to be in uh, my old home country uh, in Ottawa, the nation's capital, on Friday doing a public uh, presentation and then a workshop on the weekend uh, invited by the RA Camera Club. Although by the time this show posts, maybe it's already happened. I don't really know. And um, my website is stevesimonphoto.com and uh, on Twitter, which I'm loving since you guys got me involved, Twitter slash Steve Simon. And uh, if you want to see me, um, you can look in the June issue of Digital Photo Pro. On the very back page, I did kind of a, a Nikon ad for the D700. And, uh, you know, they asked me a few questions and I answered them. So that's just uh, hit the newsstands now. That's really cool, Steve. I didn't know that. I'm gonna, yeah, I, I actually yeah, subscribe to that. So I'll, uh, I'll look for you on the back page. <laughs> when you come out here, will you, will you sign mine for me just so I can, you know. Put it on eBay. I will consider signing it for you. I, I'll I'll have to think about that, Fred. Hey, you know I got bills to pay. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you want to follow this show, uh, you can you can catch up with us on twiplog.com. That's our that's the home of this podcast. And you can also follow us on our Facebook fan page. Just go to uh, facebook.com forward slash this week in photography. I think that will lead you to it. 
And if you are looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Frederick Van. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. <laughs>